Good morning, everybody. It's great to be here again, and I'm just excited to share the final message of what's been a brilliant series. This has blessed us as pastors sharing it each week, and uh, really this message is a, is a summary of where we've been over the last uh, 10 weeks, I guess, since we've started flipping. So uh, if you've got your Bibles, please uh, grab them. I, I know we show the scriptures on the screen, but it's, there's something better about having your own Bible, or even if you use an app, you can turn that on and, and uh, turn to Philippians chapter 4, which is where we're going to be uh, camping out for the next, next little while. I love church history. I love uh, church history because it reminds me and encourages me and challenges me about how many people have gone before us uh, setting a path to us as to how to live life uh, through often through great challenges. And there's a very famous quote, many of you will recognize this uh, quote, um, by a gentleman called Hugh Latimer to his friend Nicholas Ridley in the year was 1555 and they were in the middle of the, uh, the Reformation revival was going uh, sweeping through England at the time and these two gentlemen were leaders in the English church and so uh, Latimer says to Ridley, be of good cheer Master Ridley and play the man. For today, by God's grace, we will light a candle in England that will never be put out. It's a very famous quote, and, and uh, you could read that, and if you don't know the surrounding circumstance, you might think maybe the images of them sat around a table, maybe there's an actual candle there, and they're just talking about the wonderful things that are going on in their country at that moment through the Spirit of God. But if you recognize the quote, you will know that Latimer said this to his friend Ridley literally while they were being burnt at the stake. They were both tied to a stake and the fires were rising around them. Be the man. <laughs> be the man, Ridley. This fire is never going to be put out. And those were prophetic words. Profoundly prophetic words. And I read those words and, and I want to recommend a book to you for those of you. This is a great summer read. It's called uh, 50 Christians That Every Christian Should Know by Warren Wiersbe. It's a fantastic book, just short chapters as you work through some of the uh, incredible historical figures. And what will come through is really what Paul is communicating in Philippians is this, uh, this overwhelming sense of joy and contentment in God, even when literally their world is falling apart while they are being burned at the stake. They can say, be of good cheer. Good cheer. I struggle when I can't find something to watch on Netflix. <laughs> you know, you throw your remote control down, you blame your kids, and it's like, ah, oh, forget it. I don't feel good cheer in moments like that. Sometimes I think about things that are going on in my life, and, and I'm sure you're the same, and it can pull you down, whereas there just seems to be something that Paul communicates to us in Philippians that says, listen, even though I'm in prison, I have something better, something more wonderful. And, and so today, I'm going to summarize this whole book in one message, and we're going to camp out on one or two verses in the middle of Philippians 4. Verse 11, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Remember, he's in prison. And notice he says learned. This is not something that comes natural. It's something he's had to learn to do. 
And he carries on in verse 12 in his letter. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger. Abundance and need. I have learned the secret, Paul says. And he's summarizing his letter. The letter is the secret. This word content is a very interesting word. It it literally means to be satisfied by yourself. Satisfied by yourself. Not needing anything or anyone or any circumstance or situation in order for you to feel satisfied. And the word literally means that kind of nice feeling you have after a really good meal. You're not too bloated. It's just right. It feels like the world is at peace inside. It's that satisfaction. It's just a deep sense of joy and calmness and peace. That sounds good, doesn't it? Is that not what we want? Imagine going to that job that today you're dreading, but tomorrow, if you had this contentment, you have that joy and that peace. You're not reliant on your job going well or your boss being good to you or your employees doing what they should do. The, the stress just disappears. The circumstances have not changed, but you have a satisfaction by and in yourself that is not dependent on anything or anyone or any situation around you. Imagine going to school, young people. Every class is a joy. You just get up in the morning, you're like, yes, school. I love that professor. I can't understand a word he's saying. I disagree with her, but I love it. It's great. Where does that come from? Well, either it's insanity or it's something else. You can have that. Paul says you can have that. Every relationship, every circumstance, wherever you go, every room you go into, you bring a breath of fresh air with you because there's something going on inside of you. You're satisfied by yourself. Because let's be honest, we look for this and we rely on peace and joy from things that ultimately will leave us still thirsty. Many years ago, and I I am actually going to take a drink as I talk about this, Many years ago, about 23 years ago, my wife and I were moving house. And uh, when I say house, it was actually a really tiny little apartment called Flats in Britain. It was on real seafront. It howled. It was nasty. It was cold. And we were looking forward to getting out of this flat and getting into a new home that we'd managed to uh, somehow scrape together a deposit and buy for, I don't know, £2.50 at the time or something. And uh, we were excited. And so I knew we had a lot of shifting around all day to do. And so what I thought, I planned well, is I made my myself a a large jug of juice, orange juice, and I put it in the kitchen, and I thought every time I go past, if I need to, I can take a swig, and the plan worked perfectly until the afternoon, and I kept on filling this thing up, there were other people helping us, help yourself, and I forgot about, I didn't use the glass, I was just kind of, I'll just swig it out of the jug, it's fine. So while this was happening, it was a perfect plan. My wife, Sarah, she had had this brilliant idea that she didn't communicate to me. 
In Britain, it would be quite common, I'm not sure if it still is today, Phil, maybe you can tell me later, but you, you actually have these big pans just filled with fat. Sounds good, hey? The Brits are well known for their food. Filled with fat that you warm up and then you throw chips in and it's deep fat fryer. And so you can't really just throw this down the sink, that's not a good thing. So Sarah thought, I know. There's a jug here, I'll empty out the orange juice and I'll put fat in it. And it was the same color. You can see where this is going, can't you? Except what I didn't notice was the brown bits of old chips floating around in the bottom, but never mind, I just took the thing and I gave it a big old swig, swallowed it down. It was foul. I mean, I just immediately reacted, as you would, don't judge me, spat all over now our old carpet. We were moving, who cares? <laughs> spat it out and just yelled, what's that? Turned to my wife, expecting a sincere look of empathy and sympathy and, oh, love, I'm so sorry. No, just laughed a lot. <laughs> Still does. She was here last night as I told this story. It still makes her laugh. I actually think it was all part of a cunning plan, but it really let me down. I was looking to this to quench a thirst that ultimately made me heave. And often we look at things in our life believing that that will be the answer. If I could just drink of that, then I will find that contentment and satisfaction and peace. And we're so thoroughly let down. The first thing I want you to notice is contentment is not an option. Contentment is not an option. As humans, we are wired to seek contentment. We're very easily dissatisfied and discontent. Our culture has noticed this and is driven by discontentment. Let me give you some examples. It stokes the fire of discontentment in our culture by simple things like marketing. Marketing knows that if it can build up, advertisers know, if they can build up a sense of discontent inside of you, then you are more likely to buy the product they're trying to sell you. So we switch on the TV or turn on the internet or whatever it might be, and, and, and guys, we see that beautiful, sleek car, and we see the man who's driving it handsome, dressed well, Smells good, we imagine. Great sunglasses, just his world is put together. And you look at that car and you go, if I could have that car, that could be me. You know, we ignore the punch that's going around here. We think, no, no, I, I can be as good looking as him. My life sucks compared to that man. I must have that car. I must have that phone, I must have that aftershave, I must have those runners, and the list goes on. It builds up a sense of discontentment, and ladies, you're exactly the same. You know, the beautiful lady who's, I don't know, in her mid-50s comes on looking like she's 20 because she's lathered stuff on her face. And don't criticize me, you, you, you know, I, guys, I think there's a lot of you probably doing the same. You look at yourself and you go, mm, no, not so good. And you buy this product because the promise is that it will make you look better and it increases this discontent. Social media, you go on, you see how amazingly popular and how much fun other people are having. 
lifts up discontent, we're dissatisfied, and then that leads to us making decisions that ultimately will harm us. So we get into debt, because we're trying to quench this fire of discontent. We have an affair, because we're discontent. Or we start getting addicted to things, because we're trying to self-medicate the discontent. And eventually it will kill us emotionally, psychologically, perhaps even physically. And it's all because of this discontent. In Exodus 21 and verse 17, this is God through Moses speaking to his people. He says this, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. In other words, don't look at your neighbor's house with discontent, wishing that it was yours. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Coveting is the exact opposite of contentment. Contentment is being satisfied. Coveting is looking at something else, having a sense of dissatisfaction and coveting it. I need that for me to be happy. I have to have those things. We get into this when thinking. If, you know, when I get fill in the blank, then I will be content, I will find peace, I will be happy. When I get to a certain level economically, when I get a certain job, when I get to this other place, when I get a, into a relationship, when I get a husband or a wife, or, or, or when I get a different husband or a different wife, then I will be content. And yet we find that we still want more. We get that thing. And it's not enough. We want more. Why? Because we're wired for contentment. We're wired to have something very big filled by someone very big. I remember at the age of 30, I was offered a job. I was, uh, I was in Britain at the time, and I was offered a job in Vancouver. And uh, it was a great job. I, was, you know, I, felt, I felt very proud that I'd been offered this job because they found me. And, and so they flew me in for various interviews. And, and it was involved in an independent school in Vancouver, a very beautiful school. And uh, I, was, I was teaching at the time. And I remember I was feeling discontent. And I thought, this is the answer. When I get to Vancouver, which is one of the most beautiful cities in the world, have you been to Rill? Like when you live in Rill, I'm sorry if there's anybody watching from Rill, please don't email because you know it's true. But you know, you look at places like Vancouver and you go, oh, if I could just get there, if I could just get that job, if I could just get to that standard of living. But you know, there's an old saying, isn't there? Wherever you go, there you are. Right? And it only took a couple of years for that same discontent to start rising again. And it took me a process to actually realize that the only thing that was going to serve this discontent was something far bigger than anything that I could find in this world. Because the first and the last commandments are connected. The first commandment is love God. And I found and I learned that contentment is a natural byproduct of following the command to love God. Because if you love God, everything else appeals small. Because he satiates you. He satisfies you. And there's nothing that can replace, nothing that can compare. And I had to go through a process of deep discontent in order to learn that. And in many ways, in a micro level, I still do. 
He's so patient because he continually reminds me that contentment is not an option. It's something that I'm wired to have, and it can only be found in him. Because number two, contentment is not found on the outside. Notice what Paul says, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Whatever situation, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger and abundance and need. He's learned contentment regardless of the situation. He's satisfied in and of himself. So here's my question. Do you find being your satisfaction by yourself with something that's inside or are you looking to other things? Things that Exodus 21 verse 17 point out to us. You covet your neighbor's house. Maybe you're coveting your neighbor's wife or husband or their possessions. And and these are still very applicable to us today in our culture. Because you look at coveting your neighbor's wife, in other words, you are dissatisfied with the relationship you're in. If I can just find that right relationship, then I will be content. You know, as a pastor and the pastors in the church will certainly resonate with this. We have the joy of, of counseling uh, pre-marriage, sometimes pre-counseling, and, and it is great, and, and, uh, and it's beautiful, and they gaze at each other's, and they're just like, so in love. It's so beautiful. And you think to yourself, you've got no idea. <laughs> you don't know what it's going to be like. Yes, she is beautiful. She's wonderful. You do anything. She completes you. And she gazes at him and is like, he's everything I need. And he's lovely. I'm not criticizing that. But if we look at our relationships as an answer to a need that we have, they are going to disappoint you. Fractures will start in the relationship. Because if you take a broken thing and another broken thing and you put them together... Guess what? You don't get a fixed thing. I've broken a lot of stuff, I know. Well, you're saying, Glenn, are you you saying that I'm broken? We all have our issues, don't we? We believe that everybody who, I'm, I'm not setting policy here, Phil, but Phil and I have chatted. Maybe everybody who gets married should go through Encounter God. Maybe they should do Hearing God. You know, I think that'd be a great idea. Because broken thing, broken thing coming together, not looking to the other as their answer because you put unfair expectations on the other person and they will let you down and disappoint you. And those of you being married, I've been, married, I've been with my wife 25 years, married 23 years, I know. I love her passionately. But she's disappointed me. Oh, that's a terrible thing to say. Let's be honest, married people, come on. And I've disappointed her many, many, many times. But if she looked at me as her answer, then her life would be a mess. But she looks to something else for her contentment and satisfaction. And his name is Jesus. She's in love with another guy. And I'm all right with that. Because the more she loves him, the better our marriage will be. And the more I love Jesus, if I love Jesus more than I love my wife, that is the most loving thing I can do. So we look to relationships as an answer and they're not. He says, don't look at your neighbor's house. Don't look at their success, their, their, 
their, their prosperity, their influence. Don't think that if you could just get that, then you will have your answer. It doesn't work that way. In fact, it will break you. Because if you rely on business or money or influence or power, when it fluctuates, so will you and your contentment will disappear. Anything that is your neighbor's possessions, if I could just get that, then my life will be complete. As great as these things are, friends, they're not enough. We've been designed for something so much more beautiful and bigger and powerful and incredible. And his name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. And when he comes and he transforms and when he changes from within, you taste and see that he is good and nothing else compares. And it makes your marriage better. Does that mean all struggles go away? I wish. But I tell you what, one thing I have noticed is the world paints a beautiful picture of the way life should be and the way marriage should be, but doesn't give you an answer as to how to get there. Jesus does. Jesus does. Placed within, he changes you. So how do you get satisfied by yourself? How do you get to that place? What I want to do before we jump into the real practical part is I want to divide the crowd into two. Not physically, you'll be glad to know. I'm not back at high school. And, uh, but I just want to kind of section us off in our thinking. And I want to do it by using a story in the Old Testament. I'm going to read it to you and you can find it in Exodus chapter 8. This is God talking. He said, I will plague all your country with frogs. Is the, the ten plagues not going to be that DVD or whatever the equivalent is that you're going to watch when you get to heaven? That's going to be one of the first. I want to see what this, these plagues look like. I want to watch David and Goliath. And I want to, but these plagues, I did, this is an unbelievable scene. The Nile shall swarm. Notice the word swarm with frogs. Have you ever been in a swarm? You know, a swarm of mosquitoes, I think we, they're really bad this year, aren't they, in, in Watson? And it's nasty, they're just thick, the air is thick with mosquitoes. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom. You're going to wake up in the morning, you're going to turn to your wife or your husband, and you're going to see a big, fat, sweaty, ribbiting frog. Ribbit. Morning. And remember, frogs in Egypt, you can look this up, I did. Some of them are four foot long. They're called Goliath frogs. Imagine waking up next to that. Some of you go, well, I kind of do. <laughs> but push that thought aside. Everywhere you go and he carries on. It'd be in your bedroom. It'd be on your bed, in the house of your servants and your people, into your ovens and kneading bowls. You're going to be kneading bread and a frog's going to jump in and everywhere, brush your teeth, a frog, everywhere you go, frog, ribbit, the frog shall come up on you and on your peeps, going to be on you and on all your servants, this is a desperate situation, then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people and I will let the people go to sacrifice the Lord. We get to a place where we realize that there is discontent and we know that we are not going to find an answer. 
Take these frogs away. What we do in a culture is we look to something else to try and get rid of the frogs, but we kind of just add to them. We add to our own problems. So Pharaoh says, plead with the Lord to take them. I plead with them. This is a desperate man. Maybe some of you are desperate. Maybe you've spent thousands to try and find contentment. Hundreds of thousands moving, buying, um, and trying to find that answer. And Moses said to Pharaoh, be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and for your servants and for your people that the frogs can be cut from you and your house and will be left only in the Nile. So here's where I'm going to divide you into two. Verse 10. And Pharaoh said, tomorrow. Tomorrow. You see, he has an option of getting rid of this discontent, these frogs, today. And what does he choose? Tomorrow. I'm going to live with these frogs just one more night. Some of you today will be like, I am done. Christians, you know that you're placing your contentment in other things, knowing that it should be Jesus. But you're willing to live with the discontent one more night because you are not willing to come to him and confess and ask for forgiveness and turn your life over to him and say, Jesus, whatever you want, I will give up. I will stop those things that draw me away from you. I will start doing more of those things that will draw me to you. I'm done today. But some of you will go, "Mm -mm, tomorrow. I want to sleep with that frog just one more night. Some of you have never submitted your life to Jesus. You can, oh, I'll get to it. When? Tomorrow. Next year. When I'm a bit older. Tomorrow. So you see there's two groups. There's today and there's tomorrow. So when I present to you what Paul says is his secret... You have a today or tomorrow mindset. Is it today that you are going to believe this? Or is it tomorrow? Why would it be tomorrow? You see, Paul's secret is that he knows that the core of Christianity is that it's about being transformed by Jesus. Our vision in this church, let me catch up. Oh gosh, I'm going the wrong way. Here we go, wrong button is Willow Park Church exists to see lives transformed by Jesus in the Okanagan Valley. That's our vision. We believe that Jesus transforms lives. And it starts by our kind of thinking about Jesus changing, and then our thinking about ourselves changing as a result. I'm grateful that I work and that my calling is fulfilled in this place where we're all about Jesus. And I'm unashamed to say his name in this pulpit. I'm unashamed to offend some of you about talking about the cross and about Jesus and sin. Because he is the one who transforms your thinking. He will bring that contentment. And it changes your thinking about yourself. How do you think Paul was able to stay so calm and content? How was he able to rise above his circumstances? How was Latimer and Ridley able, while they're actually being burned to the stake, to say, be of good cheer? How is that possible? They'd learned a secret, and they'd started looking at their own lives differently. Their self-image had been transformed. Notice what Paul says. Verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. 
This is so much more than a verse that athletes use before a game. This is a verse that says, my whole life is anchored in Jesus. All my achievements are about Jesus. This is not about me. I can only do these things through Jesus. And therefore, he is free. Nothing holds him. Nothing holds him to a place where he is discontent because the things are not happening. He's able to go, you know what? If this is happening, it's all about Jesus anyway. Some of you are maybe sat going, Glenn, I wish I could have a faith like that. I wish I could have a faith like that, but I just can't. Christians, some of you are thinking, I, I know where I need to be, but I just can't get there. I, I don't have that kind of faith. But let me help you. True faith in Jesus doesn't start with faith in Jesus. It's initiated by Jesus. But true faith in Jesus actually starts with you not having faith in yourself. That's where it starts, having no faith in yourself. So Christians, where is your trust? Are you still placing your trust in your TFSA and RSP or your business or your own ability and your own decisions? Are you placing your trust in that? Because you cannot say, I don't have enough faith, when you are placing so much faith in that place. All Paul is doing is he's placed his faith somewhere else. Some of you are refusing to trust Jesus. Some of you are refusing to distrust yourself. Yeah, I'm not going to believe anything this preacher says. You know, this whole Jesus thing, it's not for me. Well, what you're actually doing is you're placing trust in yourself. And I really hope you know what you're doing. I really hope that you will find the answer and the contentment and the peace and the forgiveness and the freedom from shame and the adventure and the joy and the love. I really hope that you will debunk every other human being on this planet who has tried and failed. I hope it's you. I hope you get to do it. But I have a deep sense and knowledge that you won't. So it's not about trusting me or trusting Jesus. It's more about refusing to trust yourself, your own judgment, your own resources. And I speak to Christians and those who are still seeking. Who is it you are trust? You are deciding what is right. You are deciding what is wrong. You are deciding how life should be in the middle in the hope that one day you will find the very thing that you're seeking after. And Paul says, no, no, no. You, you can't do this. You're only going to find it in Jesus. So it's not that you don't have faith. You do. It's faith in yourself. You see, Paul, you read in Romans chapter 7 especially, Paul basically says, I lost faith in myself. He's coveting things. He mentions coveting. And he loses faith in himself. And he places faith in Jesus. And what initiates that? Jesus himself meets us. Today I'm believing that God himself, his Holy Spirit, is speaking to many of you. And you know that you're placing your trust. Christians or those that are seeking, you know you're placing your trust in the very areas that ultimately will only bring you pain. So is it today or is it tomorrow? Because when Jesus looked at the cross, Pastor Phil is going to lead communion in just a couple of minutes. When Jesus looked at the cross and he bowed before his father in that garden and he literally sweated, and it is possible, by the way, you get under so much stress that you can burst blood vessels in your forehead. He sweated blood 
And he said, God, if there's any other way, Father, can there be any other way? Yet not my will, but yours. And you get up, and the today started. You didn't put it off. It was today. I serve a God who gave himself today for me to receive this joy and freedom today, this forgiveness today, not tomorrow, today. Phil and I often joke about different styles of preaching, and there's the kind of, you know, if you don't believe in Jesus, you might go out there and get hit by a bus. You know, we're not about that kind of preaching, but we have led enough funerals to know life is serious today. And the good news is, and I'm going to finish here, is God promises not to forgive you tomorrow, but today. Freedom can come today. Contentment can come today. That you can live in that same secret, just like Paul, and say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And friends, we all need this. That's why I've loved Philippians so much. It's just this beautiful reminder of how amazing it is to have Jesus live in you. And you can have that today. Christians, many of you need to get right. You know that you're still trusting in things that are empty. So today, you can find freedom from that. And for those of you who don't know Jesus, today you can find that forgiveness. Let's pray. Lord, we just quiet ourselves before you. And I believe, Lord, that by your promise that you are moving and working in this room. Father, I pray in Jesus' name that there will be many in this room that resolve today. I'm going to place my focus on Jesus. I did it many years ago. But today I'm going to stop and put trust in him more than anything else. Lord, I pray for the Christians who have been Christians for a long time that are struggling. God, I pray that they would remember their first love. Lord, for those who don't know you yet, God, that they would just put their focus and attention upon you and find joy and freedom from the God of today. Praise your name, Lord Jesus.